And uh, my title is the beginning of Romans chapter 7. So let's stand as we open God's Word together and navigate uh, through the book of Romans and see where God has us today. Romans 7.1, here we go. Uh, Paul says, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is not an adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who has raised you from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. May God bless the reading of his word. Be seated in God's house. First of all, I want you to know this, that uh, Apostle Paul is not trying to be uh, sexist, or uh, 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 what's the opposite of feminist, uh, masculinist? I have no idea. He's not trying to, to oppress women by saying that they are bound by law to their husbands. <laughs> Uh, so, so I hope if you're a woman and you're like bound by law, what in the world is going on? Okay, he's saying legally they're married. That marriage is a legal sanction. Uh, one time I heard of a guy that went to a church, and uh, they had homecoming dinner afterwards, and he got up to go fix his uh, plate, and uh, the pastor went up to him and said, "Brother, what are you doing?" And he said, "I'm fixing my food." And the pastor said, well, you need to be seated so your wife can do that for you. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Was this in 1923? He's like, no, it was, it was up the road. That's, I mean, anyway, so that's not the mentality that Paul's getting at. Praise the Lord. Hmm. He's talking to being joined. Joined in the, in the covenant. The covenant. And he says in the beginning, Don't you know, brothers and sisters, that I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over you only as long as you live. What point is Paul trying to make? He's saying, listen, you are no longer living for the purpose of trying to make yourself better. Under the law, you have the premise, I need to make myself better. That's why I said, most of these books in the Christian bookstore, even today, most of the TV preachers, they're preaching legalism because they're going to tell you how to make yourself better. You can't. You can't. So he's saying you're no longer under that system which says that you have to increase your performance. That is, that is bondage and slavery. 
As long as you're under the law, you're under the weight of your own deficiency because the law always says you have more to be. But you're not under that anymore. You have nothing to prove anymore. You no longer are under the system that you have to show anyone else, including God, that you have to be better. You're not under that law anymore. You see, when we live under law, not only does it affect how we view ourselves, it affects how we view others. <laughs> others. As long as you are measuring yourself by how good you are, then you're also going to measure other people by how good they are under the law. This is where legalism and judgmentalism comes from. When I'm looking to see how tall I am, I'm going to see how short other people are. That's living under the law. All judgment and condemnation comes from living under the law. Uh, a, a lady shared with me about this preacher that goes on, on campus at uh, UNC Charlotte and just, just yells, sh- yells at all the sinners, tells the young lady they look like, uh, uh, excuse my, my French, whores, um, um, just talks about, you know, you're, they're all going to hell, the homosexuals are going to hell. Let me tell you, no one goes to hell because of their sexual activity. Don't matter what side of the spectrum it's on. And, and the gospel is not, you are going to hell because of your merits. That's not the gospel. That's the law. You don't get to the gospel unless you say, but through the merit of Christ, heaven is offered. No matter how many people you've had relationships with. Judgmentalism springs from the place of self-legalism. We think that someone who judges others really thinks they're better than other people, but in reality, they think they're terrible people. I'm going to explain this to you. Because when someone really has such a low value of their identity, then all judgmentalism is an attempt at self-salvation. If I can put someone else down, that's going to give me some little bit of value that puffs me up. It's not because they think they're better. It's because they are vainly attempting to put value into a place where there is none. So I'm going to try to judge someone and and put them down because then it's going to make me think I'm actually better. They don't think they're better. They're trying to make themselves better. This is the root of offendedness, the root of bitterness, the root of gossip, the root of malice, etc., etc. When we think that by judging or condemning or being negative about someone else, it's going to make them look smaller and make me look bigger. It's an attempt at self-salvation. If I can try to find righteousness, then what I'm essence trying to do is I'm trying to save myself from my own works by putting someone else down. That's living under the law. And what those things become, they become functional saviors. We think by putting someone else down, we are bigger, and we put value in a place where really no value exists. Let me tell you, people that that judge or condemn someone else are doing it because there's no value here. And they're trying to put value. If I can make you appear small, it's going to make me puff up, and then I'm going to try To do what only Jesus Christ can. I'm going to try to put in here what only Jesus Christ can put in there. 
If value existed there, I would not have to turn to other external things to make me valuable. I would not have to judge other, other people to make me valuable. And the problem for the legalistic person is that without all those things, without the judgment, the condemnation, the slander, the malice, they have no value. Unless I'm constantly talking about someone else, I have no value under the law. Because I don't appear big unless someone else appears small. Amen? Got quiet for 10 minutes. <laughs> All those things are grasping at the wind, trying to save ourselves. We're trying to find functional saviors apart from the work of Christ by living under the law, by saying, look, look how bad they are. Ooh, look what they did. Did you hear about what they did? But in reality, we're all what they did. Not a single one of us wants what we have done aired to everyone. You don't have any friends. <laughs> You'd be a lonely hermit. If people saw your actions and they saw the real you, they wouldn't like it. Why the church is a place of grace? We, we, accept, we accept people unconditionally. Even if we hate one another, which happens in the house of God sometimes. <laughs> Even if people <laughs> hate one another, we're still called to love our enemies. And the thing is, sometimes our enemies are right beside each other in the pit. We don't have to go out in the world to love the enemies. That's why corporate worship is always an exercise of grace. <laughs> we practice sharing the gospel by simply sharing it across the aisle. This is the truth. And that's fine because the church should be a picture of heaven. Because ultimately I say, the way you operate towards me does not dictate my operation towards you. That is grace. I'm not going to change my operation towards you based on what I've heard or based on what you've done. I'm not going to let that affect this because my affection is affected by Christ. Because in the end, Christ does not respond to any of us based on how we've responded to Him. That's unconditional love. So I'm telling you why Apostle Paul is talking to you today. He's talking to me today. Because even though you and I know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we still think we need to save ourselves through the law. Therefore, every external need, every external want is something that we must have in order to bring validation becomes a functional Savior that we try to grasp at. Because we don't really see that Christ has already saved us from our need to validate yourself. Therefore, every external need becomes an idol. Whenever the self tries to live, whenever the flesh tries to boast in his or her own accomplishment, whenever I try to make what, what I have done look good to you, I'm wanting you to see, look at the value based on what I've done. We're still living under the law. We can't add value through accomplishments. For example, this is so pervasive in America. Living under the law. Have you ever met a one-upper? One you know what a one-upper is? A one-upper is someone that always has a story bigger than your story. 
When you share with someone about a promotion you got at work, they share the story about one day their boss was absent and they were CEO for a day. When you tell them that your kid made the football team, they tell you that their kid won MVP. They're always trying to one-up themselves. Oh, you did something? Look what I did. It's always said, oh, oh I've got to be as valuable or more valuable than you are. And let me tell you, the worst place this happens. Pastor conferences. I kid you not. Pastor conferences like a bodybuilding show. I've never been to a bodybuilding show. I mean, I didn't have to preface that, but I've seen them on TV. I've seen the guys, and they got up here a big, thank you. They got up here bigger in front of the other guys. And here's what happened at pastor conferences. You'll say, how's your church doing? Huh. Last year we baptized eight people. Wow, that's good. We doubled Sunday school. Then the other guy said, "Mm -hmm. we just got a new bus. And they all trying to one-up themselves. I have a rule. I don't tell anybody at a pastor's conference how my church is doing. How's the church doing? Good. Pretty good. Still sinners in need of God's grace in the pew. Like there was last year. We don't have to find self validation (laughs) by what we think we achieve and that's part of the evangelical movement right now everyone wants like you know big churches instead of faithful churches the reason America wants to keep up with the Joneses and is an example of every single person who lives under the law we want to have as much value as they do Kyle stand up for me Come here. This is Jones. This is literally the Joneses. You got to stand out. Stand out right here. See, look. If I try to stand straight up, man. If I try to keep up with the Joneses, (laughs) it'll never happen. And this is what I'm going to do my whole life. Right? Thank you, man. (laughs) You knew it was coming. Now, you may... (laughs) Look as good as them, but you are no more valuable. Anything that's good done with the wrong motive becomes an example of self-salvation. Let me preach here. Any good thing done with the wrong motive becomes self-salvation. That's what I had to tell teenagers. I still tell teenagers, the boyfriend, the girlfriend is not going to make you more valuable. The spouse is not going to bring value into your life that eternal value is only able to. And therefore, anything that we could lose tomorrow, whether it be job, house, spouse, mother, father, brother, sister, on and on and on. Anything we could lose tomorrow cannot bring ultimate peace. Because if we place our peace in those things, then what happens when they're gone? 
even our own life, cannot bring ultimate value. The greatest fear is death. If I die, what will be my existence? And this is why the Christian story is always different. Listen, when the Black Plague broke out in Rome, it's kind of like this Ebola thing going on. All the Roman inhabitants evacuated except the Christians who stayed and cared for the Black Plague victims. They didn't care about dying. Let me tell you, when Ebola starts sweeping, when, when Africa starts sweeping, let me tell you, the Christians will go serve when no one else does. Because my life is not valuable whether or not I lose tomorrow or not. I win either way. It's a win-win situation. So people try to bring value into our life by functional saviors under the law. This is why people want so much to leave a legacy. The pharaohs of Egypt, that's why they built such massive pyramids. They wanted to leave a legacy. Because the Egypt uh, uh, religion really was not very, very good about the afterlife. It was not a promising place for anyone. So therefore, the only way for their accomplishment to live on was to build some sort of legacy that people could look and say, oh yeah, I remember that guy. So they built the most massive structures in the world so that they could bring externally value into their life. And we all try to do this. We all try to do this through things. There was a preacher in the Moravian church. Maybe you've heard me talk about them. His name was Count Zinzendorf. I don't know why they called him counts. <laughs> but this is the only quote I know by him. It's to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now, ironically, he died a long time ago, but I still remember his quote. But here's the point. That what he was saying was that his life will not be valuable by what you're able to do, but only by attaching it to something that has lasting value. Your life has no value... Unless it is attached to something that has lasting value. Amen? Even Nokia said amen. As long as we seek self-validation in external things other than the gospel, we're still living under the law. We're still trying to validate ourselves. I'm still trying to climb the, the ladder. I'm still trying to get up to God instead of seeing that God has come down to meet me. And he says in verse 2, For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So what Paul is telling us is that as long as the self tries to live, as long as the self tries to seek validation, then the law is still in effect. You're putting yourself under a system that you don't have to be in. As long as you're trying to self find, find those bits of validation... We're still letting the law operate. Why does the self try to continue to live? Why do we have such a problem trying to boast in self or trying to achieve something that only Christ can accomplish for us? There are a few reasons. Number one is we think we have the ability. We think we can justify our value through works. We think by being good... We're ultimately going to appear better to God or other people or even self. 
well, if I can be good enough, then I'm going to have value. We think that our relationship with an almighty, sovereign, heavenly father depends on our ability instead of his ability. You think salvation depends on you. That's the root of it. How ridiculous is that? How ridiculous is it to think that our relationship depends on our ability to be good and not on God's ability? But all religion, even Christianity, is permeated with the idea that in order to relate with God, you have to be good enough. You hear me talk when we give the Lord's Supper, the communion together, that we can't get clean before we come to communion. You cannot clean yourself before you come to communion. And I've heard preachers say, you better get right with God before you come to the communion table or you're eating judgment on yourself. Let me say this tonight if you've never heard it. You don't get right God with God before communion. You get right with God because of communion. That's what you're partaking in. I said, guys, if you have undealt sin in your life, you must come to the Lord's table. Because this is where Jesus has dealt with it. He has dealt with it. He has dealt with the separation between you and God. Not you. You're invited to partake, not to perform. You're invited to eat, not to cook. The communion says Jesus did what you can't do. And that pervades Christian theology. That we have to get right with God. People think this. Why don't you, why don't you uh, uh, become a Christian? I'm not right with God. Duh! <laughs> That's my greatest evangelistic word now. That's Roman's new favorite word. Roman, what are you doing? Duh. I don't know what it means. Why, why haven't you come uh, 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 to be baptized yet? Well, I just need to get some things right. You don't understand the gospel. You will never make it right until you see that Jesus has made it right for you. So we, don't, we think that our ability depends on God. Secondly, we don't understand the true nature of God. We think that God operates like we do. If someone does something to us and offends us, then they need to make it right before we proceed in our relationship with them. They better say they're sorry before I come over to their house. Mm-hmm. He better write me an apology before I you know, talk to him at work. <laughs> How many times has that happened this week? Somebody did something. And you knew you weren't going to operate the same way because of what they did. We live in law every single day. But God doesn't, praise God. <laughs> Another example of living in the, in, in the law how many of you, when you were out to eat and you don't get good service, don't raise your hand. How many of you left a lesser tip? You know why? Because you tip in law. Bunch of legalistic tippers. <laughs> you show your disposition based on how well they perform. Well, did you know that before the, it was called a tip, it was called gratuity? You ever see on the check it says gratuity added? You know what gratuity comes from? Root word grace. Gracious 
How much grace have you bestowed? And the answer is, for most people, none of it. You hear about that pastor that wrote uh, the waitress a, a note, said, if God gets 10%, why should I give you any more? Oh, they blasted that guy. Did y'all see that on Facebook? <laughs> I don't need to watch the news or radio. No, Facebook tells me all about people. I find it all. <laughs> what a horrible example of a Christian. You don't deserve any more. Of course they don't. That's why it's called gratuity. Grace. I'm going to tell you what I do. If I get good service, bad service, I give 20%. You know why? Because I want my grace to be dependent on my nature as a redeemed Christian and not as a legalist. God doesn't operate based on your performance. Praise be to God. Because he would never relate with you. That's the honest truth. If it was performance based, you'd never have a relationship with him. He operates based on the perfect and righteous performance of his son, Jesus Christ. This is why Christ is a sacrifice in our place. We'll never attain the perfection of works in which Jesus lived. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. You aren't the perfect sacrifice because you'll never be. But Jesus was and we can rest in him. That's what it means to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior because He attains what you can't attain through all our grasping at the wind to self-validate. He is the Savior. I can remember listening to a sermon about three or four years ago in which a preacher was uh, talking about VeggieTales. Now, first of all, let me tell you I'm not against VeggieTales. I love it. We use it in children's church. My kids watch it. I like to sing silly songs with Larry the Cucumber. But let me tell you the struggle that, that I was having listening to him. This preacher was saying that sometimes VeggieTales misses the point. Because when VeggieTales tells the story of Moses, or when VeggieTales tells the story of Noah, or tells the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we are motivated to replicate the behavior of those characters in those stories. And for most of us, growing up in Sunday school, when we heard a sermon about the, uh, a Sunday school lesson about the faithfulness of Noah, we were instructed, be like Noah, who was good, because the rest of the world was wicked. Be like Moses, who was a leader, and led people and did the right thing. That's the way we heard church. And that's the way VeggieTales sometimes presents it. And here's what the, the preacher was saying. He says, ultimately, that's not the gospel. And, and I really had a problem with it because I was like, I love VeggieTales. Don't you tell me my VeggieTales is not right. <laughs> but here's what he said. The point of the Bible is not that you can be like Noah. The point of the Bible is not... <laughs> That you can be like Moses. The point of the Bible is not that you can be like David and fight Goliath. For a few reasons. Number one, all those men were essentially failures. After Noah got off the boat, he planted a vineyard. First thing he did, he's like, man, I ain't had wine in 140 days. Planted a vineyard. Probably took him like three years. Got drunk. <laughs> 
Moses leads the people, goes out and smashes a rock in anger. He's not the example. David fights Goliath but can't even fight a woman. Is that the truth? She conquered him. Should have been leading the kingdom instead of walking around a little tour on the roof. They're not our examples. They point to the example who was Jesus Christ who never failed. Why does God show us righteous men who fall so he'll know it's never on your works? It's always on him. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, she's, uh, Paul says, So then, if, if the woman has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law, and, if, uh, uh, and she's not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. My friend, here's the reason you died to the law. So that you could be joined to another. So that you could be joined to the bridegroom of Christ. So that your identity rests in him. You know, you know there's great, a great tradition that we still, we still celebrate. That, that when, when a lady gets married, she takes the name of her spouse. Most of the time, unless she's like a famous doctor and then they hyphenate. <laughs> Why do they do that? Because that represents a biblical-based identity which the, the, the wife is joined to the nature of the husband. My friend, you and I no longer have the last name of lawkeeper. Before Christ, I was Jesse Lawkeeper. That's my maiden name. <laughs> Jesse Lawkeeper tried to, tried to improve his performance, tried to be the good person. Ultimately, in the midst of trying to be a good person, I continually failed on my face because I never could do it. But now that I'm attached to another, I'm Jesse Christ Righteousness. That's my new name, my new identity. Your identity is no longer rooted in your ability to be good, but His ability to be good. You are the hands and feet of His body. What determines the function of the hand? It's because the hand is attached ultimately to the brain. He's the identifier now. He, he is the one who, who his thought is driving us. You ever wake up and your hand's just smacking you in the face? <laughs> no! <laughs> because the hand hopefully is under control of the head. This is why the scripture says, apart from him, you can do nothing. You go chop your hand off, it's not a good hand. The hand has no ability to find value or worth or merit apart from what the head is telling it to do. He says, verse 5, for when we are in the realm of flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit for death. What aroused the sinful passions? It was the law. The law says, you can be good. 
You can bring value. You see the seductive nature of the law? What did the serpent give Adam? He gave him law. You can do this and be godlike. It's a seductive. Oh, ooh, I didn't think of that. That's a new one. Let me see how much more I can do. And ultimately, the law is like this Stairmaster, this Nordic track that you're running on, but it's not taking you nowhere. When we were in the realm of flesh, verse 5, the sinful passions were at work in us. Before Christ, we were a dead hand. We were a dead hand cut off from the body. And what we were trying to do through the law was we were trying to put on rings to make ourselves a pretty dead hand so that we'd appear righteous and useful. We were trying to paint the fingernails of the dead hand so that we'd appear righteous and useful, but not connected to the master. We had no value in ourselves. But verse 6, now by dying to what once was binding us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. What does it mean to serve in the Spirit? It means I'm no longer trying to validate. Now I'm simply trying to serve. I'm no longer trying to look good. Now I'm just trying to do what is good. I no longer need position or pomp or title to show people, oh yeah, I've achieved. No, 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 no. I'm going to do it just because that's what my last name says I do. But thanks be to God, the old law of works has passed away. We put on the new law of Christ. And because of grace, we can worship in spirit and in truth. All God's people said, Amen.